Sinister Myth, How Stories We Tell Perpetuate Violence. This podcast challenges cultural mythologies about sexuality in the West, because so often they encourage, perpetuate, or foster violences against women and minorities. It is supported by an Ohio State Affordable Learning Exchange grant and is created by Zoe Brigley-Thompson and Brendan Walsh. My name is Treva Lindsay. I am an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at The Ohio State University. And my work focuses on African-American women's history, popular culture, social movements, and sexual and gender politics. It's great to have you with us today. And I wanted to start off by talking about your study, Coloured No More, Reinventing Black Womanhood in Washington, D.C. And at the beginning of your study, there's a really interesting moment where you describe the 1893 World Fair in Chicago, Illinois, and how a group of black women, Anna Julia Cooper and others, used this space to foreground atrocities against women of colour in in American history. Could you talk about the significance of that moment and how it still resonates today? The World's Fair of 1893 is such a pivotal moment in U.S. history. It's this moment where we think about exhibition, manifest destiny, technology, and this turn of the century moment for a number of people. But for these Black women who take the stage at this event in many ways are this disruptive force to that narrative because they're pointing out the regressive elements of this nation, thinking about Black women who at this point largely are just out of slavery, right? This is about a 30-year point at which they're out of slavery and thinking about how do we move into the future without addressing anti-Black racism, without addressing sexism, without addressing poverty. And I think it's really important that these women who represent different ideas about how we move forward in this moment, how Black women in particular move forward are saying, we're going to center Black women's voices, we're going to center Black women's stories, and we're going to say that we're at the foundation of if this nation can truly move forward into the 20th century without addressing these different atrocities. You mentioned the narrative of manifest destiny there, and this seemed to be something really prominent at the Chicago Fair the way that it ignored the genocide of indigenous peoples in the Americas and the reliance on slavery. And disturbingly, this narrative still seems to echo through the present day in forms of violence, racism and prejudice about sexuality. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on this manifest destiny narrative and how it works in modern American culture. Absolutely. You can hear the remnants of manifest destiny and make America great again. You hear it in the ways that people talk about, ooh, if it were just like back in the day. And I'm always like, well, what back in the day do we want here? And who's included in that back in the day? And Manifest Destiny is fundamentally racist, fundamentally anti-Indigenous, fundamentally anti-woman. And I think it's important to highlight that and to also highlight a number of the kind of founding myths and different turn of the century myths that emerge that have relevance today. So even our founding myth of this nation being one of liberty and justice and equality for all, well, this is a document that's written by white slaveholding, property owning men. And that's a very particular class, but that also is the class that still largely holds power in the United States, white, wealthy men. 
and to the exclusion of so many different groups. So you have to think about Manifest Destiny in that context that is a later iteration of something that's deeply embedded in the fabric of this nation. It's deeply embedded in our foundational documents of democracy. And I think it's important to connect all of those to these moments now where we ask and hear proclamations about America's greatness or lack thereof, depending on where you fall on the political spectrum and what your experiences have been and what your ancestors' experiences have been in this country. Hmm. And do you think that links to the way in which certain narratives are set up about class, for example, about poverty, and the way in which there's an erasure of certain cultural or institutional racisms from thinking about how poverty works. Yes, I absolutely think that a lot of the language that we hear, even when you hear politicians talk when it gets to election time around this middle class, every formation is around the middle class. You have very few people talking about the reality of poverty. But if you look at those founding documents again, they were about protecting property and they were about protecting property owners. And if you understand in particular, Black people in this nation as property, right? That is their founding relationship to the United States is as property. And so there's always going to be this tension until we actually unpack the thing at the core of this, which is that if we privilege property in the ways that we do, which leads to kind of hyper-capitalism as we think about it, then bodies and people will always be exploited and be left to kind of fend for themselves in a system and that things to help those who already have power become more robust. So you get a more corporate welfare state more so than a social welfare state. So as social welfare declines and has been declining for the last few decades, you see the rise of corporate welfare, bailouts, right, for the auto industry, helping Wall Street, limiting kind of the protections and the ways that we can engage when companies or corporations have treated individuals wrong. A case like Citizens United, which essentially says corporations are people. This is something that privileges wealth and helps to create and sustain poverty as a fundamental truth of this nation as well. It's, it's interesting because this is something that a lot of black women creative writers are trying to draw attention to. So fairly recently, Toni Morrison published A Mercy, which is very much about thinking of the origins of America and the origins of American racism too. And what I really liked about that mm -hmm. book was the way in which she highlights the fact that often people think about racism as being something which existed forever, you know, and has just emerged, that it, it might be some kind of human frailty or human weakness. And yet what she brings up is the fact that racism was very specifically created in relation to a system of domination, a system of of capitalism and that this is something that is at the root of America's origins which is a really disturbing thought right? It's absolutely disturbing but unfortunately so painfully true that mm -hmm. This idea of America's brand of racism, because we see racism pop up in many different places, right? So the U.S. does not have any kind of sole proprietorship over racism. But what you do see is that it is emboldened, it is empowered, it is given its logics. We talk about the logics of American racism, and we can find them illogical and irrational and inhumane and all of these things. But they are fundamental logics of racism that allow for 
a particular group to ascend. In this case, we're thinking about white male property um, owners in this case, which creates second class citizenship for all women and then creates third class citizenship for African-Americans, peoples of African descent, enslaved people, and creates no sense of citizenship for the people whose land is occupied, right, through the creation of the United States. And so it's really important, I think, that you see writers taking this on in both creative forms, in public forms, in terms of kind of op-eds and critical writing, scholars addressing this and being forthright and forthcoming about the ways that this is something that is created, a system a structures that is emboldened through institutions, that is enhanced and given power through institutions. So racism is almost a product that is, you know, convenient for white people in American history, but also in the present day. And I'm thinking about the torrent of cases of police brutality. And I'm also thinking about the fact, though, that in campaigns against police brutality, there's been a tendency to focus on the victimization of black men rather than thinking about black women's experiences of brutality. Do you think there's more awareness now about the fact that black women also experience such violence at alarming rates? I hope that there's more awareness about black women and girls having encounters with police that can turn fatal, that are violent. I think one of the cases that really brought that to the fore was the case of Sandra Bland in 2015. But it was interesting to think about that case because although her case became more known than a lot of other cases of women, five of other black women were killed in police custody that month alone. And so we don't know their names. We don't know to look into that as a particular way that black women are impacted by this. We don't think about this in terms of sexual misconduct, police sexual misconduct in black women where we see more of a representation of women as victims. I think more recently with the case of Shakesia Clemens at the Waffle House in Alabama mm -hmm. and that video going viral to see that kind of brutality play out. Um, although these videos are very difficult to watch and I personally have kind of shielded myself in certain ways from watching too much of them. I think it's important to have this uh, visual record where we're saying these are things that not only happen to Black women, but they happen frequently. If we look at recent police violence against Black people, anti-Black police violence, at the youngest we have Ayanna Stanley Jones, six years old, and at the oldest we have Pearlie Golden, who was in her 90s. And so a black girl and a black woman kind of anchor <laughs> even the age. It didn't matter what age these people were, but I think it's important that we continue to say her name and that you have work coming out of places like African American Policy Forum, um, Say Her Name campaigns, and Black Women's Blueprint, and different initiatives that are pushing us to say black women and girls matter too in this conversation about brutality. You mentioned uh, Say Her Name, and I wondered, how successful do you think that hashtag campaigns are in raising awareness about violence or actually preventing it? And I was thinking too about campaigns online related to R. Kelly recently, you know, with Ava DuVernay and Shonda Rhimes calling on the Time's Up hashtag as well to to try and draw awareness to certain kinds of violence. And I wondered if you felt that that was successful or to what extent it was successful. I think it's important. We are in a moment where social media absolutely matters and they can matter in both positive and negative ways and then some ways that are 
neither positive or negative, that they just exist. I think we got to watch Ferguson unfold because of social media. And I think that that brought an awareness that social media was there well before any mainstream media news outlets were there to see what was happening. We knew about the length of time Michael Brown's body was on the ground because of social media. And that hashtag was something you could follow and gain awareness. I think it's important in terms of information, even when it's misinformation that we can immediately correct information in ways that oftentimes mainstream media news, you have to wait, there's a retraction, there's an update. Social media has a faster kind of self-reflexivity that can be really important. And it can also be a pile on of wrong information and that can be very challenging. I think that the tool is important and can be useful in terms of mobilizing. Uh, I think the organizing part of it is the part that is a little trickier in terms of thinking about its efficacy, what how effective it is. But I think I learn about so many cases from social media. I think the boycott Starbucks was a really important moment for social media that largely went viral and Starbucks had to respond and had to respond publicly that you see companies that now have to make statements on social media in terms of how they're going to move forward with this. So you have Starbucks who responds with shutting down their businesses for a day to do this kind of training around racial bias and racism. And you have Waffle House doubling down even after the video of this very physical assault um, that happens to a customer of theirs. So in that instance, I think it can keep us pushing forward and drawing awareness and making people more broadly who aren't aware of the pervasiveness of anti-Black violence aware. But I do think that it has to be paired with other kinds of organizing and mobilizing tools. And thinking about violence against Black women, I saw you presenting recently specifically on violence against black girls. And I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that. Sure, I I was really troubled, even in our conversations, even when they did make it to black women, that there was still this incredible emphasis in terms of resources and initiatives and projects that focused on black boys and how we think about black boys, which is really important work. And I, I it's somewhere like Ohio State that has a entire institute that was really looking at African-American men and boys. I think that work is very important. However, some of the narrative then became that African-American girls were somehow uniquely resilient or weren't being affected deeply by harsher discipline in school, being misread as combative and aggressive and angry and therefore policed in particular kinds of ways, surveilled in different kinds of ways. And so I really wanted to look at some of the videos that came out with instances of violence between black girls and police and also listening to the stories of black girls in these spaces, in their schools, um, in after school programs and other kinds of institutions where they were having very similar experiences to what we tend to hear around young men of color and boys of color. And it was important for me to dig in and see what was happening with black girls and what are the particular ways that this violence plays out on their bodies. So sexism absolutely plays into that. Misogyny plays into that. Transphobia plays into that for black girls. And I think it's important to excavate that work and make sure we're saying, you know, me too sounds <laughs> in this moment, <laughs> uh, sounds interesting kind of intervention, but me too. Um, and black girls need to be centered because they're at this intersection of anti-black racism, sexism, oftentimes poverty um, for our LGBTQ youth that makes them even more vulnerable to particular kinds of violence. So I think that work is starting to be done and you have some 
amazing folks really reaching out and doing that kind of work and putting black girls at the center of their work. So Me Too has been just an incredible campaign, an incredible phenomenon. And it's interesting because you're somebody who really advocates for thinking about the experiences, the voices and the rights of trans and non-gender conforming people. And of course, Me Too was criticised for not actually necessarily at first including those voices or at least the version of Me Too that we see now because it it was actually set up by a black woman years before this phenomenon took off. And so I wondered if you felt that it improved, if if people were paying more attention to those voices now as a result of the the discussion online about, about Me Too and Time's Up. I think the discussion is growing. I don't think it's growing as fast as it should around full inclusivity of um, our most marginalized uh, women and people within the movement, within Me Too. I think we still, when we think about statistics around sexual violence, a lot of it still is very much so based in a heterosexual kind of context. It's still based in people who are cisgender. It is not really taking seriously people who exist on the gender spectrum. It's not talking about trans people and the unique ways that violence impacts that community. And I think it's really a a gap that is slowly being filled because you have incredible trans activists who are pushing that conversation. And again, this is where Twitter comes in as an important force because that dialogue is immediate. That correction is 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 more is more present than it would be if we were kind of waiting for something to happen offline. Online, you have this immediate, this does not include trans women. How can we do this better? And I think that people who've been doing this work for a while, even prior to the kind of 2017 explosion of Me Too as a hashtag and eventually what leads to Time's Up, is that survivors were centered, that there were spaces and forming more spaces for people who do not fit neatly into a gender binary. And I think that that work needs to continue, especially if we're gonna address the pervasiveness of sexual violence. And we know from all kinds of studies that now exist, how vulnerable in particular trans women of color are to sexual violence in their lifetime. And so we have to take seriously what that means if we're saying we're gonna look at the margins of the margins in order to understand how we disrupt the larger power structures that allow for rape culture to prevail, that allow for sexual violence to be perpetuated and be ongoing. And would you have any specific advice of how to be an ally to communities like that? I think one important thing to do first is I want everyone to be informed about what that reality is and what those statistics are, what this looks like. I think when we list our stories, when we do our hashtags, that we are not just fully inclusive, including the names of trans folks and gender non-conforming, gender non-binary folks in there, but what are the campaigns that we're involved in? What are the organizations that we're lifting up? What are the voices that we're amplifying? When we get opportunities to speak, who else are we inviting to the table and by inviting, and not just inviting, but saying, here, take my seat because I think your voice needs to be central to this. And it has to be a kind of self-reflection for anybody who considers themselves an ally, an accomplice, a co-conspirator, whatever (laughs) kind of framing you wanna have that in is that we're constantly checking our privilege and 
sitting with the fact that we do have privilege and how we use that and asking these communities what they want, not assuming that this is what they want. This is what we need to amplify. These are the issues that are most important. It is really about being in conversation with these communities and assuring that we're creating brave spaces in which their voices are heard, their stories are heard, and the kinds of ideas that they have about addressing this are also at the table. And if the table is rotten and the table is shaky and broken, that we start by building a table that includes some of the builders who are not the people who built the table before. Right. And... One of the things we talk about a lot on the course that I teach is what a huge impact representations can have. And, you know, who is direct in films, who is produced in TV programs, who is acting in them, who is writing them, you know, that these are all really significant questions. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about popular culture and the kinds of contributions that artists like Beyonce might make to changing stereotypes and really making people question themselves and check their privilege. The phenomenon of Beyonce. <laughs> it really is a phenomenon because if you would have told me 10 years ago that Beyonce would be the kind of cultural icon that she is, I would not have believed you. I knew she was gonna be a big, I knew she was gonna be a star. That was never in question, but there's a way that she is in a league all of her own in many ways in terms of the platform that she's created and how much of that platform is a self-authored. And by this, I don't mean to in any way diminish the team around her because part of being self-authored is having a team that really sees the vision that you're creating and then you develop this collective collaborative effort. And that is what you see with Beyonce's production. So you have her performing at one of the most well-attended festivals in the United States and is the first black woman to headline this in 2018. And she calls them out for it while she's performing and does a performance that is deeply rooted in black culture from the music, from who's on stage, from using musicians from historically black colleges and universities. There's a singing the black national anthem. There are really important interventions that happen in this moment that I think that someone like a Beyonce having the kind of platform that she has can open up a conversation to do, that she is talking about feminism. I have a, a few goddaughters, but one of my goddaughters would never identify herself as a feminist and then Beyonce did and suddenly she wanted to talk to me about feminism. And I'm like, I've been in your life for over a decade and been like, come on, feminism. And now Beyonce says it. So, But I think as scholars, as activists, as artists, we often have to sometimes take a step back and listen to where people are and, and and really hear them and what they're connecting to in her. So I was like, what is it about the kind of feminism she's talking about that connects with you? And how do we build that into your own kind of feminist standpoint or your own activist consciousness? And I think that she's really important for that. I think a number of artists right now are doing incredible work from Ava DuVernay, who's Queen Sugar, has all women directors, which I know had Hollywood all in a tizzy. And she's like, well, if you have a problem with it, Let's go back and look at all of the films, television, media culture that has been a primarily male-dominated space because that's a far longer history than two seasons of a show where I'm trying to create not just a pipeline, but 
a group, a community of women who are creatives and doing this kind of work. I think it's the work of someone like a Janelle Monet recently talking about sexuality so openly, being beyond, again, this very narrow conception of what we presume people's sexuality to be. It defies this kind of academic term compulsory heterosexuality, but you don't have to be straight, right? <laughs> and to see such a popular artist do a kind of work that is pushing that and and you can watch her and watch her evolution as an artist to do that. And then you just think about all of the shows that exist right now that are led by this Shonda Rhimes and the empire that is Shondaland. It's an incredible kind of moment. And yet we still have so far to go in seeing full representation. We still don't see as many trans and gender non-binary characters. We still have more narrow character characterizations and depictions of LGBTQ life in general in there. And I see that being pushed farther and farther each season each moment and so I'm encouraged by that that artists are using these platforms to push us forward and to ask difficult questions and to make us uncomfortable and I think we have to be uncomfortable for any kind of real growth and sustained growth to happen not just as there's this moment where this happens but that we become more accustomed to and celebratory of the fact that our shows look more like our reality our music sounds more like how our world is moving. And that still gives people just space to create and to imagine, because that's also the artistic space and what pop culture at its best can do. And is there anything else you wanted to add that you, you feel is important to say or that you, you, you're working on at the moment? Sure. I mean, the next project is really focused on violence against Black women and girls, but looking at it from the perspective of how we talk about this in a way that we don't have to keep saying us too and don't always feel like we're alone in this as black women and girls fighting that looking at that history, what this looks like in all the different ways, violence and harm show up in the lives of black women and girls across history and our history in the United States. It's so important to point out the ways that black women and girls have shown up and been present in all of these kinds of movements, but really have movements or campaigns been mounted on behalf of black women and girls. And I think it's important to trace that history, show where we are and hopefully push for significant change around that. So that this idea in hip hop, we say like the rider die chick, that this image is like the rider die chick has died and been killed so many times. Can we think about, a ride and live framework and that that is some a framework that's rooted in reciprocity that we get an exchange a dynamic and something that is truly rooted in love and love in this case meaning love that is rooted in accountability and that there's no love among each other without justice that that is actually a prerequisite for the kind of love that we talk about so you can't say i love you and then make a vote that actually makes life more difficult and untenable for undocumented immigrants for trans folks for sex workers you can't do that those two things are actually incompatible and i think it's important to call that out so that we work on a love politic that is more robust more just and more centered on people who are most deeply impacted by these founding systems, by these founding logics that are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, anti-poor, ableist. I think it's really important that we develop that love politics.